You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, a conversation between audience and artists intended to demystify the classical music and opera art form. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. It's available via Spotify and Audioboom. That way, you'll hear about the latest podcasts as they become available. Be sure to follow Thoroughly Good on Twitter or on Facebook, and you'll find the blog at thoroughlygood.me. Rum the rat looks quite a swell and lives in London docks. He wears a battered bowler hat and knee-length yellow socks. The music of Jim Parker heard here in an extract from one of the songs that makes up the first volume of Captain Beaky from the early 1980s, a song entitled Ronald the Rat, may at first seem like an odd place to start a podcast episode about composer Bernard Hughes and his forthcoming release Not Now Bernard and Other Stories on the 7th of February 2020. Parker's music, like that of many other TV soundtrack composers like, say, Christopher Gunning or George Fenton, achieves something remarkable in a very short space of time. That's what's been ordered, that's what's paid for. Such music sets a scene and contextualises with breathtaking immediacy. It's done so quickly, we do sometimes not even realise what it's made up of. It's done by evoking a style, a sense of place, an atmosphere, or characterising a personality. And when it's done well, it roots the listener in that space, allowing the listener to rub shoulders with the narrator or the protagonist or both. And with the listener completely focused in, a message can be conveyed, and that same message will be effortlessly assimilated. When I listened back to Ronald the Rat for the first time in what felt like 30 years, it could have been less, I really can't remember, it was the textures in the instruments that catapulted me back in time to when I was a kid. The contrabassoon solo chuntering around all over the place gives the whole thing a sense of spirit and drive. It draws me in closer and closer. And I think it's the same with Bernard Hughes' music on the album Not Now Bernard. There is a touching sense of intimacy to the paired down pit band sound in the collaboration between conductor Tom Hammond and narrator Alexander Armstrong. The material played by the orchestra fills in David McKee's original 150-word story with a sense of drama and colour. Music doesn't need to be complicated to do its job. That I was reminded of Jim Parker's music isn't because it's been copied, it's because there are triggers in the way Hughes's score is put together that reminds me of those songs I heard over and over again as a kid. That suggests that if two composers are able to achieve the same ends and they're working 40 years apart, then there's an art or a methodology or some kind of guiding principle to this which most of us overlook. Never has looking under the bonnet of things been quite so tempting. There was a touch of poetry too to our encounter. It was Bernard Hughes's wife who introduced him to the suite of songs Captain Beaky and it was as a result of meeting Bernard for this podcast episode I was able to hear the songs again. And that is why they're the starting point for this episode. Because that illustrates one other happy consequence of making these podcasts. A sense of a growing network of people who all of them through conversation introduce music to one another. In this episode you'll hear extracts from the new recording of Bernard Hughes' work around 20 minutes in after the both of us have discussed the joy of manuscript paper and graphical scores, the similarity between composing and video editing and spoiler alert, if you're not sick of the creative project you're working on by the time you think you've finished it then you haven't finished it and 
I discovered that the place I studied radio production, Morley College in London, also just happens to be where composers Gustav Holst and Michael Tippett were directors of music. I should be clear, in case there is any doubt, I wasn't there when they were. But before that, take a listen to the concluding minute of Ronald the Rat. Revel like me in the four-part exchange between contrabassoon, recorder, I think, clarinet and trumpet. It's music I want to be in, music I want to play and music I never want to leave behind. Listen to his tap routine up and down the street. I don't I feel as though I see a lot of you. I, I, don't I, know why. I tweet. Right. I follow you on Twitter, and I don't. And I don't know if you follow me, but you have. We've certainly had some interactions on, on Twitter, but beyond that, this is the first time we've met, and uh, I'm enjoying the experience. Are you? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, it's only been a few minutes. <laughs> um, when did you start composing? So I mean, you look terribly young. Uh, yeah, I look younger than I am. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm older than you might right. think. Okay, fine. Great. Um, well, you wear it well. Uh, thank you. Um, I started composing, so when I was about seven or eight, I found some manuscript paper in my house. My dad was a church musician, and I started writing on it. And um, no one asked me to, no one suggested I did, and several decades later I'm still doing that. What attracted you to the manuscript? I've I think no I, I know. I have no idea. And the weird thing was, actually, was that it was um, a chant manuscript paper that had four lines. Oh. So I was baffled by that, but I wrote in by hand the fifth line. I'd been learning the piano for a couple of years by that stage, so I wrote in by hand the fifth line. And the other thing I remember about this is I wrote out a key signature that had a mixture of sharps and flats in it. And so I wrote out a key signature, sharps and flats, wrote some notes, and I showed it to my dad, and he said, you can't have a key signature that mixes sharps and flats. <laughs> and I said, why, why not? Why, why, not? why not? Exactly. <laughs> and and uh, Exactly. So I wouldn't be told at that stage. So, so, so even at that stage, I was keen to do... You know, to, if, if I was told I couldn't do it, I was keen to do it. But it, I, I think I know what you mean. I, I remember finding the site of the blank manuscript. I had a sort of... It wasn't even A5. It was a sort of a long, thin manuscript book that my piano teacher gave yeah. me when I was a kid. And I remember when it was fresh, I found that quite appealing. And I remember that as being appealing, and still do now. But there was something about a printed manuscript... That was extra special because this is. You mean with the five lines? Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. So there yeah. was something quite yeah. appealing about that. Yeah, no, Are definitely. you excited by typography and fonts? Well, yeah. I mean, I used to, I used to write by hand. I'm of the generation, the last generation that really composed by hand and switched to um, computers. I guess in my mid twenties. So I had by then developed quite a nice um, handwriting, music handwriting, and I do look back on my um, on my old scores with some pride. And then, because now the only time I ever write music by hand is drafting and sketching, and it's very, very sketchy, and no one else can understand it. I kind of regret the fact I've lost that 
neat handwriting. But equally, I, I appreciate the benefits of, of using computers for composing, and I've been an advocate for those, even when, at the time when I first started doing them, there was a certain disapproval amongst, say, composition teachers or older generations of composers who would say, you're not really supposed to use a computer or... or it's kind of cheating, whereas I was always an advocate che- of it. Well, cheating. that was that was that was, that was really? a view, yeah, absolutely. And and I think um, in what way is it cheating? In that it was kind of not using your imagination, or it was um, leaping to a finished product uh, straight away, bypassing a, a sketch. You know, I still sketch, absolutely sketch, but um, I, to me, it's it's a, a very valuable tool that doesn't substitute for imagination but, but kind of augments it and helps There is it. an interface then between um, I'm sorry I use that, I mean I, I, I move in corporate circles so <laughs> the word interface is, That's a, fine. is That's something fine. that I have been using a lot more recently, including <laughs> the word leverage, so okay. let's all brace Connectivity? Um, yeah, and, and possibly even synergies uh, but I wonder whether there is a, an interesting interface between sketching as art um, and and that artwork, that art endeavour, being um, a conduit for imagination. Yeah, uh, there's a Twitter feed. I don't know if you follow called Music Notation is Beautiful. Yes, which just throws out examples of either very old or very recent um, examples of beautiful notation. And I do love that. There is something beautiful about looking at a beautiful score. Some of the um, the, the the avant-garde ones tend to are, are beautiful and lovely to look at, but um, I'm not sure whether the music content quite no, or, or, or exactly what a performer is supposed to do when faced by it. So, so I, sometimes I think the notation can get fetishized to an extent where it moves beyond the, 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 the serving the composition and becomes the end in itself. But does the sketching process allow you to access different parts of your imagination in a way that, that when you switch to computers, you're having to sort of find a different way of accessing the imagination. Yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely. And, and I think one of the things about sketching by hand is the speed at which you can do it. And so, so what I'm often mapping out early on in sketches is um, the pacing of things and, the, and the, the trying to get the flow of the music. And maybe that might involve sketching at a, at a, larger, a larger scale than down to a smaller scale. Um, on the other hand... So it's not necessarily about detail, it's about sort of not, overarching structure. Uh, certainly, certainly at the first stage. And then onto the computer, it's actually a similar thing. The computer is, about, is often about pacing. So when you listen to it through and you can hear, well, I've just got to that moment slightly too soon or I need to take a beat out there, add a beat in there. Um, so, and that actually does tie in with the fact that a lot of... Uh, my, my, my feeling about a lot of success in composition is about pacing. It's about the rate at which things happen, the rate at which you deliver the things that you're promising to deliver. And actually, pacing is, is the big, big, big thing. Can you tell me more about that? Because I'm suddenly... Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, you mean within within uh, a seven- or eight-minute piece, what's important is where the milestones are? Yeah, yep. okay. and that can, ha- and I mean it on, on a large scale and a small scale. So, like I was saying, describing just then, that when you're listening to it, you think, well, I just, I'm just getting there too soon on a micro level, but also within the, the, the large scale, um, where, where, where does the high point need to be? Where does the, where's the, the, the structural um, kind of uh, joins and where do they need to go? And that can work whether it is a seven-minute piece or an hour-long piece, not that I've written many of those, or whether it's a two-minute piece. They all have those same kind of questions of structure and, and pacing and balance. I think that's absolutely crucial. I, I experienced a similar thing with video production. So I filmed a string quartet on Saturday, and it was just a, uh, a performance of Little Drummer Boy. 
I mean, that's what it was. I said that's what it was. But it's string quartet playing Little Drummer Boy. And, you know, it's, it's just two minutes, really. Uh, but we had some really tasty shots. And, and there was one particular shot which was really striking that came from my colleague. Um, and at the point of editing, I sort of thought, when is the moment to reveal that shot? Yeah. Have we revealed it too late? Because yeah, the other, yeah. the, the, the tension with video on social media especially is that people will lose interest after 20 seconds. Right. <laughs> so do you need, this was the tussle that was in my head, do you need to put that tasty shot in within the first 20 seconds and essentially what you're doing is you're cutting to the climax yeah, before yeah, yeah. you reach the climax yeah. in the music yeah. in order to maintain, the com- in order to inqu- increase the completion rate or do you do you go with your narrative tendencies? Which is, no, it, we'll yeah. reveal it at the yeah, point yeah, where yeah, the music yeah. reveals. Yeah. Uh, do you do you struggle with a similar sort of thing in composition? Well, I mean, it, it's generally the case that, that people are listening live are going to listen to the end anyway <laughs> because they're there. <laughs> because they're there. <laughs> so it's not, I, I don't think it's as quite as as kind of um, crude, if you like, in that as that as that you're talking about. But but absolutely, I think um, uh, the. That absolutely applies to piece of music, and also in terms of holding things back, I've always been an advocate of the, of the point of view that a good ending will cover up a lot of sins elsewhere. <laughs> so actually, don't waste okay. your ending early because actually, a, oh, I see. So if you end so it's well, it's almost like insurance. Yeah, well, no, it's it's almost like um, it's almost like a magician going kapow kapow, and a reveal at the end. Well, even if their their delivery in the middle hasn't been very good, or the setting up hasn't been very good, if the if the punchline at the end works then then wow that says a lot to struggle with yeah yeah god who'd be a composer <laughs> <laughs> well i mean it's an interesting one because as i said um no one ever suggested to me oh i should do it and although i've had a certain amount of encouragement along the way i don't think anyone would have really been too upset if i'd stopped at any stage in the last what was the nature of the encouragement well um so i had um a teacher at secondary school who encouraged me to, to compose and and, um, and he uh, I, I wrote music for a, a, incidental music for a school play when I was about 15 which was great of him to, to, to put that confidence in me and, and I enjoyed doing that and that was a, that was a kind of breakthrough moment for me um, I had a composition teacher when I was about 14 my mum my came across this local composer who lived around the corner who was at the time to me a terribly crusty old man but he must right. have been maybe 60 did he wear Harris Tweed no but he wore corduroy oh. and, and a cardigan although I must confess I'm wearing a cardigan <laughs> today but at the time the idea of this old I mean, man it great. It's but thank you, thank you thank you <laughs> um, but, but he and he was he was kind of not massively encouraging but in a way that made me aspire to his approval in that he once said to me I took a piece to him and he said well this is uh, an unassuming little piece that no one could really object to and it doesn't outstay its welcome and then after the lesson on my way home from the lesson I realised that was the nicest thing he'd ever said wow which is sort of damning with fake well it is but also doesn't outstay its welcome has stayed with me as a guiding principle I, I aim in my music never to outstay my that's, welcome that's which is your, not a bad that's your tank that's line. my I mantra don't, don't, don't outstay, outstay welcome. my welcome yeah and a lot of you know a lot of people do it's an awful right. thing to say but a lot of people do and so you're quite uh, efficient well I yeah your, I, the encouragement that you d- that you derived from that was that it was a compliment and that compliment was 
you're efficient. Well, he, yeah, I mean, he was nice to have around. Yeah, he wasn't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he was, I mean, I try as a, yeah, I'm a teacher myself now, a composition teacher for many years. And I do try and be more encouraging than he was to me because I think he was quite dry and, and, uh, and unencouraging. But in a way, I guess I responded to his encouragement, his lack of encouragement by wanting to succeed. And wanting Did he smell of him he didn't smell of him, but he was a, he was a lovely man, actually. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry, I was just, I was just but, my own but, but, he, but it is funny to think that I thought he was horrifically old. Did you... <laughs> did you doubt at any stage? About whether I should keep writing music? No, and that's the weird thing, is I've just kept doing it. And as I say, it really wouldn't have broken many people's hearts if I'd stopped. And I could have made a perfectly good career in any number of, of areas. And... Um, and, and I think it is something you do find composers say they, they need to do it, they have to do it and, um, and so I just keep doing it How, who are you composing, who are you condu- oh come on, who are you teaching composition to, is it so I, I work or? in a school okay. um, uh, which has a very strong musical tradition, so I work at the school uh, in Hammersmith called uh, St Paul's Girls School which is right. the school that the first 30 years of its existence the director of music was um, Holst. Holst, yeah and, and he, he was succeeded by Vaughan Williams and later succeeded by Howells Who? and John Gardner. <laughs> oh, really? so, so, so it has an extraordinary tradition of um, not just music but composition within that. And composition That's in John Elliott Gardner? No, no. John Gardner that, who wrote things like uh, Tomorrow Should Be My Dancing Day. Oh, that John Gardner, oh, Lord. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who, who was director of music at the school so for some time. So are they self... Uh, are they opting into so composition So it's a, it's a secondary school. And I teach, and I'm there as the composer in residence, so I write for the school as well as teaching composition. I teach key stage three music, uh, classroom music, which involves teaching um, composition, and then I specialise in the composition at GCSE level, A level, um, where, at which stage they're opting in. How so do you identify the composers who've got it? Oh, that's a really tough question. Obviously, don't name them. It that is. I'm not mad. That's a bit <laughs> diplomatic. Um, I wonder what you see. Okay, my, my point is actually not to worry about whether they've got it or not, but to, to offer everybody some basic tools and some, some ways into writing music which are not dependent on, on whether they have a spark or a gift or anything, but actually in the way that English teachers teach children how to, to write sentences and write paragraphs and write stories. But what do you see? Um, when, when they are doing that, that's a, that, that is a good question. Um, uh, there are there are some people who just get it. They just they just the next note follows from the previous note in a way that some people will labour over and never quite get it right. And and um, and so so in that sense there is. But but often they have a you know they're good players or so maybe they played other types of music and they, they're familiar with with the world of music. I think also I'd identify the ones who respond well to. Uh, to suggestions that are made to them, whether they are um, specific suggestions or maybe the more independently a student works, the more vague the the suggestions I'll make will be, and then to see how they respond to those. So they're triggers? Yeah. You offer them sort of triggers for the imagination? So sometimes you need to say, well, look, this this bar isn't working very well, maybe think about reworking this bar. And other times you need to say things like, um, where is this piece heading or, or... or, or you know what's it what's it trying to achieve, um, in being much much more general. And I'm also very keen because I the way I work myself is that I like to have um, where I'm going in mind. So I'll often sketch out an ending quite early in the process. And one of the weaknesses or failings of student compositions is often that they start out at the beginning and they head off on a journey without any destination in mind. So it kind of meanders along 
one thing following from another. So one of the things I'm often quite keen with students to do is to say quite early on, how is this going to end? Can we map in the ending? And then it's a bit like doing a jigsaw puzzle where you join up where you're up to with the ending and you gradually fill in the middle and the two ends meet. I think of it, so hearing you talk about that, number, number one is you're, you're head of composition at St Paul's. Well, I'm composer in residence. Right. I'm not the director of music. Okay, okay, right. Um, I, just, I was about to go, oh my God, you follow such a, a well, long line of. I have, <laughs> I have no aspiration to attend <laughs> right. all the meetings, okay, fine, do okay. all the staff is appointments. That what Holst did? Well, Holst, see, it's a very different job from when Holst did. Holst right. did one day a week. He was also simultaneously head of music at another school and head right. of music at okay. Morley College and had a professional career. At Morley College and. Yes, like, he, was, he, he, did, yeah, he did three, three jobs at the same time. So it whereas now today being director of music is a full time job. That's where um, I learned about radio. Oh, is I it? I went right? on a radio okay. production course. At okay, okay. Well, I didn't realise that. Yeah, I mean, I just thought that it was a bit of a grotty building, really, that nobody really cared about. Well, I was about. reading about Tipp- Tippett was there as well, wasn't he? I was reading the yes. Tippett's um, autobiography, uh, sorry, biography in the, over the summer, and he, he worked there during the war when it had been bombed, so I'm guessing it must be a post-war building because the, cause the, oh, okay. the building was right, bombed right, right, in, right, in, in okay. the Second World War. Um, uh, what was I going to say? That, that strikes me that when giving that feedback to students, you have to be quite diplomatic. Obviously, you need to be diplomatic yeah. with students, but, yeah. but is, that, is there a tussle there for you? Well, what's interesting is I, I taught both my children um, to play the piano, and although I'm glad I did it, it was a mutually, at times, uh, feisty experience. And I have this that it didn't turn out very well. Uh, no, it turned out fine, and, and they're both, uh, they're they're both well-adjusted, well-adjusted, well-adjusted children and, and capable musicians. But my wife, on occasion, saying to me, do you shout at your students at school like that? Oh. <laughs> and, of course, and, 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 and I have... I'm um, ending supplies of patience when I'm at school in yes. a way that I well, don't have with my own children. Like, <laughs> of course, it be is. more like me. <laughs> for God's sake. I never say that, but I. Uh, <laughs> but but as it, actually that's but that is a good point. So with my students at school, I do think it helps that to know that I am doing it myself and that I'm yes. not just preaching, but I'm actually um, uh, walking the walk and, and doing it. And so I can relate to them the, the, the experiences I have and I can sympathise with them the experiences I have, which is that, the, the, and I say this to them, the reason you're finding this hard is because it's hard. Mm. And writing music is difficult and, it, and, it, and it is, if, it's, if it's easy. I also say to them, if you're not sick of your piece, you haven't worked <laughs> on it enough. Because, because you, and, and, and you get used to a piece and you're sick of it but then an audience is going to hear it for the first time and they're not going to have had all that sitting there wading through it so so those are those are some of the mantras i have which are based on my own personal experience i have the same thing with audio or with writing yeah. or with video i i edited together a, um, a television center sort of mashup thing for me which featured me and colleagues cut to a 40 second street track and i <laughs> I really loved the track. I loved working in Television Centre at the time, and I, I must have gone over that six minutes of yeah. audio, yeah. time and time and time again. I now cannot listen to the yeah. audio, yeah. but I do recognise what you mean. Well, it's into, it, I mean, it's, you need to be sick of it. It needs yeah. to be dead. To and you. I've got this this album coming out um, next uh, next year in February in 2020, and very similar to what you're saying, having made the recording, been at the recording sessions, planned the recording session for, for, for months, then gone through the edit. Then you do reach a stage where you're, you're, you're you know, in a way sick of it. Um, but equally, you've got to be in a position where you can be enthusiastic about it because, because you're trying to enthuse people who haven't heard it before. And, and the, the worst thing to say is I'm absolutely fed up with it. Yeah, so, you've got to embark on a PR thing. No, I get that. Well, exactly. So, but it's, but, but it's, and, and you sometimes see with... 
Um, I mean, it's an impressive thing when you see it done well of, of Hollywood stars who are doing an interview about a, a film that, and they spend all day talking about this film. They're absolutely sick of it, but they, they have to, to, for each fresh interview, be fresh about it. And, and, and clearly, I'm not going to be doing doing that but Are I think describing this interview I've got another three coming up later today <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think of that many podcasts that, that, uh, that were recorded in <laughs> but it's um, you know it is a point to keep tapping into the fact that um, A people will be hearing this for the first time but also to tap in back to your own enthusiasm yeah. about why you did it in the first place and, and the fact that, that uh, you don't want to lose sight of that in the fact that you have personally got run over the material so many times you've segued rather neatly into my only question (laughs) uh, which is I've listened to it so I've listened to Not Now Bernard Not Now Bernard and other stories yes Uh, so but I only listened to Not Now Bernard oh did you okay Uh, So the book is called Not Now Bernard, and it uh, is by David McKee, who's the author behind Mr. Ben. Really? And Elmer the Patchwork Elephant. The, the, I'm, the I'm unaware of Elmer, okay. but I am aware Elmer of was, Well, Elmer was a bit later. Mr. Ben was part of my childhood right. and was, was released in the, in the time when I was uh, a child. And then Not Now Bernard was a book that came out actually 40 years ago next year in 2020. Um, so it was out again when I was a child. And because I was called Bernard, this book was, right. was very dear did to me. you think it was written about you? Um, I, did, I don't think I did. <laughs> but, it, but uh, you know, it was something... It was having an unusual name like Bernard. If you do yes. get a, a book that's got your name in the title, yeah. And in fact, I went to see um, David McKee did a talk here at the South Bank this year, earlier this year, part of a literary festival. And he said he came up with the name Bernard in the bath. He was he had this story in mind. Okay, it's in the bath and said it must be Ber- Bernard. This is the name. It has to be the name. I've no idea why because it was an uncommon name then. It's an uncommon name now. Bernard was a boy. Just an ordinary boy. He lived with his mother and his father. They always seemed very busy. afternoon, Bernard found his mum in the kitchen, doing the washing up. Hello, mum, said Bernard. His mother was too busy to take any notice. Not now, Bernard, said his mother. Upstairs, Bernard's father was hammering a nail into the wall to hang a picture on.
Hello, Dad, said Bernard. His father looked round and accidentally hammered his finger. Not now, Bernard, said his father. So, so this story it was, was very dear to me as a child, and, it, and it's one of the most extraordinary stories in terms of it has only 150 words in the, in the book, which it, and it, the elegance with which it tells the story of a, of a child. Um, and again, this is another beauty of the story, is that you read it, as a child you read the book as, as, as a book about a boy getting eaten by a monster. But as an adult, you read the story as a boy being neglected by his parents. And it's a really quite touching story. So, so when it was a, a few years ago that Tom Hammond, who's conducted this, this album, um, asked me to write a piece for um, narrator and orchestra for a family concert. Um, this was the book that immediately sprung to mind. Um, it's so very, he didn't stipulate the book? He didn't he stipulate the book, so. no. Right. And in fact, the two, the, the two pieces on the... Uh, on the CD that come together are Not Now Bernard and Isabel's Noisy Tummy which is also written by David McKee and they make a pair but Not Now Bernard was definitely the first that came to mind it's very musical it has the repetition has this recurring phrase Not Now Bernard which is scored in a number of different ways um, and uh, and just yeah I mean the, the, the piece comes from an absolute love of the book um, it also comes from uh, a desire to make other people love the book and 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 um, you know the concerts that it's been performed at, which tend to be family concerts where, where children are there with their parents. I do like to think of parents coming across the story and mm. and engaging, not just engaging with the story, but engaging with the music um, in a way. You know, I wanted to write music which is um, accessible to children, but but by no means um, patronising to them. And I and I was thinking about this the other day that. Mr. Ben is a good case in point. Do you remember the Mr. Ben theme tune? Yes. Brilliant, brilliant music. In yes. fact, the guy just looked like really, this guy. Really exactly, and he died, and he died this year, the guy who wrote it. But really quirky, interesting, and in no way patronising, proper, proper music. He was a proper jazz musician, he was a jazz saxophonist. And then, then I remember from when my kids were little, things like the Teletubbies and, and In the Night Garden, which have dreadful, dreadful music. And I don't mean to insult <laughs> another composer, but really awful, simplistic, yes. dreary music. And the Mr. Ben, to me, says you can write music which is targeted towards children, but that has um, authenticity, has credibility, and, and, and works as music. So, so again, but my there was a lot of that going on at that point in time in television, I think. Bankpuss is another example. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, there's loads. A bod. Bod, bod was wonderful. Mary, Mary Mungo Mid. Trumpton, all Trumpton those. Well. So, absolutely. And, these, and, these and were, I think that there was something yeah. about, there must yeah. be a thread running through yeah. that. But if you were to chart the production of those programmes, there was a certain mindset within production staff and commissioning yeah. editors at yeah. that point in time yeah. that said, we have to go with these right. kind of people. Yeah. I no, I, I, I mean, I, I don't know, and I don't know to what extent these more recent ones were a result of a more of a kind of committee-based yes. educationalist strategy. But, but certainly my ambition was to say, well, look, I can write quite proper music um, that will appeal to adults, will appeal to children, and, and, um, and uh, none of them will feel either spoken down to or spoken over. I felt so, as though I was being sucked into a story. Good, I'm thank 47. You. <laughs> uh, I'm not the. T- I, well, I was going to say I'm not necessarily the target audience, <laughs> but I did feel as though I was being pulled into a story and into a world within three or four minutes. I wonder whether, because of because of how important that book is to you, whether that made the writing process easy, more challenging. Maybe it came with a greater sense of responsibility. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, I. I 
I enjoyed writing it as much as I've ever enjoyed writing anything. And I wrote it very quickly. And what I did as well, which was a trick I picked up from uh, Judith Weir, um, is that I have the narration is spoken, but some of it is spoken in rhythm and accompanied by instruments playing in that rhythm. So you kind of get... Uh, almost a melody underneath it, but it, but it's not that the performer is is um, is singing it; they're speaking it. So so I incorporated dialogue into it, and um, and on the the um, <coughs> on the album it's performed by um, uh, Alexander Armstrong, who who um, as it happens, and and I wasn't really thinking about this when we when we originally thought of him to do it, was a choral scholar at both school and university. So reads music is, is very musically literate. So so when it came when it came to, 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 to feeling the musical flow of the piece, he absolutely got that as well. Where someone who didn't read music might have got it but it would have taken longer. So I think the fact that he that that, that kind of musical quality of the dialogue comes over yeah. as well. What is it um, that you love about Judith Weir's music? Yeah. Oh, well, Judith, so Judith Weir's music I came across um, when I was a student. I was introduced to her as an undergraduate in her music. Um, and the first piece I heard was a piece called The Consolations of Scholarship. I don't know, it just grabbed me. There's, there's something witty about it, there's something dry and understated, undercomposed, um, and just absolutely grabbed me, and I still absolutely cherish that piece. And then I've got to know her music much more widely, and over the last few years, got to know her herself. In fact, this uh, interviewing you reminds me of the first time I met her, I interviewed her, and did... Fif- You're not interviewing me. No, 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 but, <laughs> uh, but, but I interviewed her, and I did 15, oh, min- I did oh, 15 minutes of the interview... With, without having pressed play, without having pressed record, oh, or in no. fact, as it was, I pressed record twice. Adam, and 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 this was the first sign I saw of how sweet she is that she redid the first fifteen really? minutes again. I said, I'm going to do it again. So you were completely transparent. I, I said, well, I would yeah. never be well, because I checked. But it. I am. I noticed you checking. <laughs> well, I checked after fifteen minutes and saw this light wasn't flashing that should have been flashing, 
and, and I said to her, look, we're going to have to do this again. Um, and then, so I've got to know her over the last few years, and she's, she's a very um, generous, spirited musician. And, you know, they say don't meet your heroes, and, and, and certainly the 21, 22-year-old me, Judith Weir, was a hero of mine, and, and, and it, uh, but I've had no trouble from meeting my heroes. She's, 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 she's wonderful. And she, so she has a and piece on... Sorry. And she has a piece on this on this album as well. So when we were putting the album together with Tom Hammond, the conductor, it was a really a joint project with him. Um, I was couldn't believe my luck when we found this early Judith Weir piece from early in her career in the 1970s, which was basically the same scoring as the scoring of the other pieces we were using, and had never been recorded before, and had um, narrator and and or, um, uh, chamber orchestra, and it's a piece based on. Um, the bio tapestry and she sets the um, words across the top of the bio tapestry that tell the story of it uh, alongside this instrumental accompaniment so it's not it's by no means a children's piece but it's, it's very immediate um, and and very uh, very appealing but quite spiky and quite quite um, interesting piece it's called thread okay and, and that's the last piece on the album. And so Judith came to the recording sessions for this and, and, and came to the recording sessions for the, for the voiceover. We did the voiceover separately. And, and in fact, it was very sweet because Alexander Armstrong was delighted to meet her because she, he'd sung her music when he was a chorister. And he was delighted to meet her. She was delighted to meet him. So it was, it was a very, very positive experience doing that. I am... Uh, I've always been aware of Judith Weir, but hadn't really listened to her music. I have right. to say, and I think this is a, I think this is an audience stroke listener thing, uh, a listener experience. Uh, I hadn't heard it until I stumbled on a carol in the Festival of Nine Lessons of Carols oh, yeah. a couple of years ago, Luminare, yes, Jerusalem, yeah, yeah, which I was completely yeah. transported. Yeah. It's short. It's concise. Yeah, it's yeah. otherworldly. Uh, it's a little bit dark. Yeah, There's yeah. a darkness things, to yeah. it, yeah. which I find quite appealing. Yeah. Um, and she doesn't, I mean, to go back to my earlier point, she doesn't outstay her welcome ever. No, indeed. She, she writes extremely condensed and, 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 and uh, succinct music, and I, and I love that. And, and I, you know, that's, as I say, something that's always appealed to me. I've never, been, as a listener, been into the kind of Wagner or Strauss massive swathes no. of music I like. I There's like it no short and pithy. Yet. There's no time. So, you know, I find her, I've always found her music wonderful, and it was, it was such a stroke of luck to be able to, fi- to find this piece that fitted so well with, with what we already had in place um, and, uh, and and she's just a delightful person uh, the other thing that had struck me listening to Not Now Bernard this might seem a little weird is that it has a chamber feel to it it has a pit band feel to it it's yeah. not recorded in a pit but it has a pit band yeah. feel to it and that made me think of Captain Beaky <laughs> Captain Beaky is interesting. I didn't know Captain Beaky as a child, but my wife was devoted to Captain Beaky. And I discovered, and she found, she always used to tell me about Captain Beaky, I've never heard of it. And she found a cassette probably about 15 years ago, she found a cassette of it. She's got she a cassette. cassette. She's got and cassette. I digitised the cassette oh at that stage. And, and then there was a concert, they did a live yep. Captain Beaky in the Albert Hall about, I don't know, five years ago, six mm. years ago, which I took, we took our children to. Right. And so I discovered Captain Beaky. There's, there's, there's definitely something of, of, of Captain Beaky. Which cassette had she got? Captain Beaky and his magic band, is it called? Oh, okay. Is it called that? 
So was it number one? Because there were two cassettes. Oh, were there? Okay, I it don't was know. A I, Not that I'm nerding you out. I think this was. might have. This was the original. The first was it? Right, with uh, Penelope Keith singing something. It's a series of songs. Yes. Captain Beaky and his band. Yeah. Um, I don't remember Penelope Keith being on it. Uh, there was a, there was a, a song about a gnat, Herbert the Hedgehog. <laughs> The hedgehog lived on a hill and his home had a wonderful view of swans in a lake who loved eating cake that picnickers quite often threw. On hot summer days, young Herbert would gaze at the children down there having fun. For he loved watching kites and some flew to great heights. And oh, how he wished that he had one. Herbert the Search and you'll find him still Herbert the Hedgehog Address number two the hill I can't remember the timescale about whether I knew Captain Beaky before I wrote this piece or not. I can't quite remember which came first. Um, and what's also interesting about you saying the pit band is that, that, that Not Now Bernard, all of the three of my pieces on the album were originally symphony orchestra and then were later um, with, broken down to be a to chamber orchestra. So in fact, they, 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 in their original version, have that kind of symphonic, symphonic grandeur. Okay, right. And then when I reduced it, which was originally for a performance at, um, at the St Magnus Festival in, in, um, in Orkney, um, that's when it went down to what's 11 players. Right. It, has so, a, it sort of has that feel of you know, a big arm it's, around both yeah. musicians and audience when I listen to that's it. That's nice. That's a nice thing to say. Thank you. It's, it's certainly, like I said, I want it to be welcoming. Um, I and wonder whether a symphony orchestra, you know, well, symphonic yeah. version would, would feel a little bit sort of... I mean, the, like Peter in the, the, thing about, thing, the thing about the symphony orchestra version is, is it's got a bit of spectacle for the you know, if children going to see it. It's, there's a bit of wow factor about all those strings. Mm. And also, you know, I think I have five percussion. It's, there's lots and lots of stuff going on. And certainly there's a lot of percussion in Isabel's Noisy Tummy where there's, there's kind of all sound effects when she visits the zoo. Uh, joy, delight for you to discover Spoilers, later. spoilers. <laughs> and, um, but so, so, I mean, they're the same piece in that they're the same notes. I didn't really change any notes, but they do have a different impact. Um, and, and also, I mean, what's interesting with this is that um, they, they were designed by mainly being performed by amateur symphony orchestras. But then for this recording, we've got the professionals of the um, Orchestra of the Swan so um, because I've had to boil everything down, those parts are a little bit more challenging, a little bit more exposed. So it, so it sounds, I mean, to me, fantastic with the professional players razor sharp performances. But it, but it can be played by an amateur. It's designed for, for amateur oh, orchestra, right. yes. It was written, originally written actually for um, the British Police Symphony Orchestra. If you I have such no a idea. There was a knew? national symphony orchestra, which Tom Hammond conducted. That's how the commission came my way. Okay. Um, and he they mentioned that in the podcast. Okay, well, they do, he doesn't conduct them anymore. He conducted them for a few years. Um, and they do an annual children's concert in Symphony Hall, Birmingham. And this, that piece was written, written for, I can't remember which year it was, um, their, their Symphony Hall, Birmingham uh, performance. And it's a national uh, orchestra where policemen and affiliates come from all over the country and they tend to meet. Birmingham is one of the reasons they do it in Birmingham is it's national, cent- fairly central, so people come from all over and they tend to rehearse for long weekends and, and that kind of thing. They're very, very good, or at least they were when, when I saw them, I'm sure they still are. And uh, various other amateur orchestras have done them. Um, although, I, I mean, I'd love the professional orchestras to do them as well, but the idea is that they can be played by an amateur orchestra with a decent amount of rehearsal, or they can be played by a professional orchestra pretty much straight off. There's so, also Arnold. 
Yes, there's Malcolm Arnold. So, so, um, uh, so this again is a piece by some chance that had never been recorded uh, commercially before. And this is a piece called Toy Symphony. It's the only piece on the disc that doesn't have a narrator. But what it has is a core of five... It was written for a charity concert. There's a core of five professional players, string quartet plus piano. And then there's a barrage of another 12 people playing toy percussion, which ranges from uh, guard's whistle to uh, toy trumpets to... um, Oh, uh, whistles, nightingale whistle, cuckoo whistle. Um, and it was performed at a, at a fundraiser for the for Musicians Benevolent Fund in 1957. And it's a brilliant mix of kind of proper Malcolm Arnold tunes combined with these ridiculous sound effects and, and, and loud, which were played by celebrities of the day. So, okay, so, so it's right. a kind of novelty piece. But it's more than a novelty piece. It's a piece that does have... I say these proper tunes, proper nice, proper. Was it written for children? No, it wasn't at all. Oh, right. Was it okay. <laughs> I mean, he was very troubled. He had a very troubled life and, and, and suffered from severe mental health difficulties and severe alcoholism. But one of the extraordinary things about him is, is and it, this is one of the big arguments against people who look for the meaning of works in people's lives, if you put alongside, often, not always the case, but often you put alongside the works he was writing, alongside what was going on in his life, and you think, how on earth was he writing oh, this yes. cheerful, upbeat, hilarious sometimes, or, or sincere music at a time when he at times could barely function as a, as a you know, could barely dress himself, and, and, but could still write music of an incredible quality. Mm. So he's a very interesting character in that way. So I don't think by any means... I mean, he, he worked extensively with the National Youth Orchestra when it was, when it was founded. So, okay, so, so clearly I've, I've not really done any no, but I think, at all. But I think but later in his life he was very unapproachable and very difficult on a personal level. Yes. But I think that was... I mean, there's, there's an extraordinary biography of him that, that tells the story in, in great detail. And it's, a, I mean, an awful story in lots of ways, but also one of those that you can read as a, a triumph of the human will stories, mm. which says when someone is suffering so badly um, that they can still p- produce art of, of, of extraordinary quality. And I know Tom has, has long been an advocate of, uh, Tom Hammond, the conductor, has long been an advocate of uh, Malcolm Arnold's music and, and did a season about three years ago where with his various orchestras he did m- most of the symphonies. And they're, they're terrific pieces. The symphonies are terrific pieces. What are you working on next so, that you would like to tell us about? So I've got... Uh, I, write, I mean, we've been talking mainly about instrumental music here, but I write, I guess, predominantly choral music. I've spent a long time writing a lot of choral music, and I've had a relationship with the BBC Singers going back for a number of years. Um, and so I have an, a concert coming up with them in January, at the end of January 2020, which I'm um, just finishing off a new piece for them for that and that's this is a kind of portrait concert of several pieces of mine some of which are um n- two of which are, n- are new one of this new commission 
and some are old pieces that either they've performed before or have been performed elsewhere. Um, and it's a great opportunity. I mean, they're an extraordinary choir, a wonderful choir to work with, and I'm very lucky that I've worked with them as extensively as I have. And, um, and so, so with this concert, it's a chance to kind of celebrate older music, newer music, and, and, um, and bring those two sides. And I don't know, maybe have a look and see whether there is a thread to what I do or whether there's a, you know, a, a kind of set of tricks that I have. Because sometimes when you hear a lot of one composer's music at one go, you end up thinking less of them because you, you kind of see... Uh, That's not what I'm about to say. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that would be a very awful <laughs> thing for me to say. I've listened a lot to... I can't pronounce that, so I won't. A medieval... A medieval bestiary, yes. yes. So this was a piece I wrote for them in, I think, 2011. Right. And this is an extended piece, it's a 25-minute piece, which is set... So medieval bestiaries were books of animals, animal books from the medieval times, and they were highly illustrated and highly decorative. And I was actually given one I inherited. Uh, in fact, two of the major pieces I've written for the BBC Singers was that and The Death of Balder, and both of these were based on books I inherited from my godfather, who'd been a bibliophile. Um, and the medieval bestiary... Um, they, they illustrate these books beautifully, so I wanted to create a piece that, that had the kind of vivid colours of the animals that are depicted but also what they do quite interestingly is the bestiaries are not so interested in um, what we would call scientific truth so much as the moral message we can get from animals so whether animals are wicked or whether animals represent things in religion so, so my piece kind of t- connects with the way that they, the kind of moralistic view of animals the animal kingdom as well as the coloristic world um, and, that, and that's an interesting piece that was done again there's a wonderful choir called Londinium I don't know if you've come across them um, uh, who, who are a London based chamber choir an amateur choir and I wrote this piece for the BBC Singers thinking no one else will ever tackle this, this piece because it's mean, really hard a wall of, of sound it's really really hard yeah it's very very hard and it's uh, yeah I mean it's a very very hard piece uh, but Londinium did it last year I can't remember if it was last year or the year before and did a fantastic job of this so, so it's, it's given me renewed faith in the piece that it has a you know has a kind of life is there anything else that you'd like to tell me that I haven't asked you? <laughs> I don't think so. That I wasn't, wasn't, sure. that, that wasn't I the wasn't, COVID question. No, no, I wasn't sure where this conversation was going to go. I, I, I mean, I would, I would obviously um, you know, be delighted if people were to check out the, the, the album, which is called Not Now Burners and Other Stories. And, uh, it has a lovely cover. That's, yeah, I'm, I've, that I've had some, some positive feedback on that. I found it. It's a, it's a library picture, but I was delighted when I found it because it does everything that I wanted it to do. Um, and and it's yeah it, that's what I wanted something that's not childish but childlike or child friendly. Um, when does the album come out? It comes out on the seventh of February on Orchid Classics, who've been terrific um, to work with, and and then my BBC Singers concert is being recorded on the 30th of January and I don't know a broadcast date it'll be sometime in February that'll be out on Radio Three. And that concert features what? So it features eight pieces by me, including. You appear to be competing with somebody else. I do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, never mind. Um, Shall I go over and have a word? No, I think, I think we're okay. Um, so, so, yes, there's several pieces of mine, including this new uh, commission called A Ternary of Littles, which is a set of anaphoras. I've always, we didn't talk about anaphoras. That's always been a big favourite thing of mine. Okay, well, maybe another time. We'll talk about anaphoras okay. another time. And, um, and uh, amongst assorted other composers who I'm a very big fan of, uh, there's music by Dabrinka Tabakova, by Eleanor Alberger, and Bo Holton and Cecilia McDowell are the other composers <laughs> wow, on the programme. Wow, so. Okay. Uh, so that's recorded on 30th, 30th of January and then broadcast sometime in February 2020. 
You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, available on Spotify and Audioboom. To get in touch, please tweet at Thoroughly Good. You can also follow Thoroughly Good on Facebook and read the blog at thoroughlygood.me.